Exodus chapter 3. Now Moshe was tending the flock of Yethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. And this week, Daniel and I continue our discussion about Chapter 3. I'm thinking I'll post one or two more episodes on this. We have a few more recordings to do. But this week, we are going to talk about how God interacts with us in the physical world, how this is displayed in many stories in the Old Testament, especially with the angel of the Lord, something that will come back in an essay I'm working on right now. And so in this discussion, as we're talking about what Jesus knew, our God-based world, it's important for us to understand the Old Testament proclamation that God interacts with his people in very physical ways in order to break us of our materialism that we swim in so deeply in our modern times. And so that's the goal of today. That's much of our discussion and I really hope that this is edifying, that this helps break us, break me, break you of our pure scientism, our pure materialism. So if that's something that's interesting to you, if you want to hear some things that you may have never heard about some stories in the Old Testament, stay tuned. And as always, we'll see you in the next one. All right, so we just finished talking about the divine presence being kind of uh, us abiding in the divine presence, being yep. the objective God's, of the Bible. God's sacred space. The, the tension is, can we abide in God's sacred space, or how can we? Um, that's the Because this seems to be the world that Jesus believes in. Yeah, yeah. That's as Willard's pointing out. That's the focus of the Gospels, bringing us into God's space. That's the culmination of Revelation as the, um, the bookend to this whole story. But what this kind of assumes is, I love this heading from Willard on page 93, the substantiality of spirituality. I think it's a fantastic heading. So I'm just going to start reading and I'll stop at some point. We put all these together by saying that spirit is unbodily, um, is unbodily personal power. It is primarily a substance and it is above all God who is both spirit and substance. To understand spirit as substance is of utmost importance in our current world, which is so largely devoted to the ultimacy of matter. Globe. Yeah, 
yeah, the globe versus the Egyptian or the Israelite cosmology pictures that we've been looking at. It means that spirit is something that exists in its own right to some degree in the human case and absolutely so with God. Thoughts, feelings, wills, and their developments are so many dimensions of the spiritual substance which exercises a power that is outside the physical. Space is occupied by it, and it may manifest itself there as it chooses. This is how Jesus sees our world. It is a part of his gospel. Because we are spiritual beings, as just explained, it is for our good individually and collectively to live our lives in interactive dependence upon God and under kingdom rule. I'm skipping back to page 91. <clears throat> this is where, um, this is under the heading, what then is spiritual reality? So with, with that last quote, Willard is essentially just saying, the way that um, spirituality, like the way, way we see spirituality is it needs to function. Um, it, it manifests itself in the physical world in ways, but in just because it's not physical doesn't mean it's not real. Um, on page 88, he talks about um, the arrangement of our furniture and our house as being a way we manifest our spiritual will, right? Our will is manifested by our spirit in the physical world. And it doesn't mean that we are always actively doing something. It means that, I mean, that's why you're embarrassed when you have company over and your house is a mess, right? It's because it shows that your will, your spiritual intent is disheveled. It's not in proper order. It doesn't seem presentable. You want to intro this? Yeah. So going back just on line with what we were just discussing, but also calling back to God's space, there's many things that I could connect this to with Heiser, although I will restrain myself. Um, well, I, I don't know. Do we have time? Maybe. Maybe. Um, you got some Heiser in the notes. I do. Mm-hmm. Following this. I forgot about that. Hang on. Sorry. Let me give me one second. Let me pull this up and see what I've got in the notes here. Because it's chapters before what I read earlier. Oh. Excuse me. We're leaving it in. Okay. Okay, before, here, let's do this. Let's do this. <laughs> before we watch this little clip, I'm going to read you something. This is from, this is from Unseen Rome, chapter 18. The chapter is called, What's in a Name? I'll pull it up on the screen. He says, 
we've seen some unusual, unusual things in the last two chapters. First, Yahweh called Abraham into covenant relationship with him. Then he continued the relationship with Isaac and Jacob, whose name became Israel. The descendants of Israel were Yahweh's portion of humanity. But the interactions between Yahweh and the patriarchs seemed convoluted. Sometimes Yahweh came visible as the word. At other times, he came as an angel, apparently sent by Yahweh. Still, other times, he came... Oh, sorry. Still, other times, he came... Still, other times, there was only Yahweh in human form, without any descriptive label. The language created questions about whether Israel affirmed or denied omnipotence and about their conception of Yahweh's identity. In this chapter, we'll be introduced to another expression of Yah for Yahweh. It's used in several passages, makes it clear that the biblical writers conceived of two Yahwehs, one, in, one invisible and always present in the spiritual realm, the heavens, the other brought forth to interact with humanity on earth, most typically as a man. That there must be two is indicated by their simultaneous presence in some familiar stories. And that, yeah, you all are really kind or delusional or some sort of healthy mix. I'm not quite sure, but it's uh, really fun to be here. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moshe was tending the flock of Yethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. So let's uh, pretend. Uh, Man, could you do a little better for me? Man. Do you want to be healed? <laughs> just... Now, let me just pull this out a little farther there so you can see its beauty and splendor. If we were to set this bush on fire, how long would it take for it to fully combust? Give me an estimate. How long? 30 minutes, three minutes? Five, do I hear six? Do I hear six? Okay, let's take an average of that, which would be for somebody with like a calculator on their wristwatch, seven minutes, okay. So let's say five to 10 minutes for this thing to go, well, I just wanna know the text really and fully. So let's just get this thing on fire right now. Facilities, facilities, we have a 2319 in the main auditorium. Can we get some help down here? If we were to set this on fire, how long would it take to burn up? How long would it take? Five, ten minutes? Moses sees the bush burning and says, I will go over and see this strange sight, this bush that burns but is not fully consumed. So, if we would estimate, let's say ten minutes, how long did Moses have to be staring at the bush? Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, apparently not much going on in the land of Horeb. 
This would be pre-cable. <laughs> Fascinating. Because it's when Moses observes this strange sight, I will go over and see this strange sight, this bush that burns but is not consumed. It is then and only then that God speaks. God finds somebody with a long attention span. Perhaps this is why there aren't that many great spiritual leaders. He finds somebody who stops long enough and waits long enough to realize that there's something going on here besides simply a bush burning up. It's when he slows down and sees it that God speaks. Now the rabbis, specifically the mystics, go absolutely bonkers with this. Let me show you Rabbi Lawrence Kushner. He says this, the burning bush was not a miracle, it was a test. God wanted to find out whether or not Moses could pay attention for something for more than a few minutes. When Moses did, God spoke. The trick is to pay attention to what is going on around you long enough to behold the miracle without falling asleep. There is another world right here within this one whenever we pay attention. There is another world right here within this one whenever we slow down long enough to see it. Pause. Now, in the first sentence, let me read this. So in the same chapter, what's in a name? We know what happens after the burning bush. Yahweh, through Moses, delivers Israel from Egypt. Moses leads the people to Sinai to meet their God, receive their law, and prepare for the journey to the promised land. There is a short conversation between God and Moses about the task that is habitually overlooked by, by Bible readers in Exodus 23, God says this, Look, I'm about to send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place I've prepared. Be attentive to him and listen. Ah. Sorry. Be attentive to him and listen to his voice. Do not rebel against him because he will not forgive your transgressions for my name is in him. But if you listen attentively to his voice and do all that I say, but if you listen attentively to his voice and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. Exodus 23, 20 through 22. There's something strange about God's description to Moses that tells us that this is no ordinary angel. This angel has the authority to pardon sins or not, a status that belongs to God. Who is this that forgives sins? More specifically, God tells Moses that the reason this angel has the authority is my name is in him. What does this curious phrase mean? Moses knew instantly. Anyone thinking of the burning bush account did as well. When God told Moses that his name was in this angel, 
he was saying that he was this angel, his very presence or essence, the I am of the burning bush would accompany Moses and the Israelites to the promised land and fight for them. Other passages confirm that this reading is correct. The angel is Yahweh. Perhaps the easiest way to demonstrate that is to compare Old Testament passage about what, about who it was that brought Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. This is Leviticus 11.45. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be for you as God. You yourselves were shown this wonder in order for you to acknowledge that, that Yahweh is the God. There is no other God besides him. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to teach you. And on earth, he showed you his great fire. And you heard his words from the midst of the fire. And because you loved your ancestors, he chose their descendants after them. And he brought you forth from Egypt with his own presence by his great strength to drive out nations greater and more numerous than you from before you, to bring you and to give you to the land as an inheritance, as it, as it is this day, Deuteronomy 4, 34 through, 30, through 68. We'll skip. Oh, actually, let's read. Let's read Judges 2, 1. And the angel of Yahweh went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you to the land that I promised to your ancestors. Judges 2, 1. One more, one more passage we'll read. The one about Joshua is interesting, but we'll skip it. <sighs> This is uh, Gideon in Judges 6. It says, this is um, Judges 6, 11 through 24. The angel of Yahweh came and sat under the oak that was at Ophrium that belonged to Joash, the Abrazite. And Gideon, his son, was threshing wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of Yahweh appeared to him, and he said to him, Yahweh is with you, you mighty warrior. Gideon said to him, excuse me, my lord. If Yahweh is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us, saying, did not Yahweh bring us up from Egypt? But now Yahweh has forsaken us. He has given us into the palm of the Midianites. And Yahweh turned to him and said, Go in this, your strength, and you will deliver Israel from the palm of Midian. Did I not send you? He, Gideon, said to him, Excuse me, my lord, how will I deliver Israel? Look, my clan is the weakest and Manasseh, but I'm the youngest in my father's house. When, I'm trying to remember the scene. 
when Aragorn comes. So you have Rohan, right? The uh, Theoden, and then what is it? his his son who lead the charge? Um, or or is that the guy that she, he wants his daughter to marry? That's his son, right? Theoden's son. Yeah. Uh, Theoden's son dies. Theoden's nephew. Nephew. Uh, yes. Sorry. Who's uh, Eowyn's sister? Yes. Okay. Her brother. Brother. Correct. Yeah. Okay. There we go. So before uh, the last battle in Return of the King, uh, Aragorn meets with Elrond to go get the fulfill the oath of those who live under the mountain the cursed warriors and what is when 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 they talk about when the steward of gondor talks about not giving up his throne he doesn't want to give it to the ranger from the north what good can anything good come out of Nazareth he Gideon said to him excuse me my lord how will I deliver Israel look my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the youngest in my father's house and Yahweh said to him but I will be with you and you will defeat Midian as if they are one man. And he said to him, please, if I found favor in your eyes, show me a sign that you are speaking with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my gift and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. And Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephem of flour. And he put meat in a basket and broth he put in a pot. He brought them to him under the oak and presented them. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock. Pour the broth over it and did so. And the angel of Yahweh reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire went up from the rocks and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of Yahweh went from his sight and Gideon realized that he was the angel of Yahweh. And Gideon said, oh, my Lord Yahweh, for now I've seen the angel of Yahweh face to face. And Yahweh said to him, peace be with you. Do not fear. You will not die. And Gideon built there an altar to Yahweh and called it Yahweh is peace. To this day, it is still an Ophran of the Abrazites, Judges 6, 11 through 24. So is it Yahweh? Is it the angel? 
He has his name in him. He can pardon sins. He has power. He describes him. He is described as equal with God. I am the one that brought you out of Egypt. This is in the Old Testament, guys. This is in Exodus and Judges. But I guarantee you, if you have, please comment and let me know. None of you have heard a sermon on the angel of the Lord and the two Yahweh's, one visible and one invisible. Well, and that's going to go back to the thing that I was talking about earlier, way, way earlier with Daniel Boyarin, which we're going to get into um, next. But um, his statement that we don't talk about those sorts of things because we don't see the Old Testament as functioning that way, mostly because of this stark line, this fence that's been built up between Jewish perspectives and Christian perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so that's, we're not allowed to talk like that. And if we do talk like that, it's seen as anti-Semitic, not an authentic translation or interpretation of the Old Testament text. I was going to skip this, but it's too good. <clears throat> Joshua 5. Just the burning bush, the angel of Yahweh. And it happened, this is Joshua 5, 13 through 15. And it happened... When Joshua was by Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you with us? I think I've read this before on the podcast. Are you with us or our adversaries? And he said, neither. I have come now as the commander of Yahweh's armies, which is a phrase used a lot in uh, Jeremiah, by the way. But we'll forego that. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What is my Lord commanding his servant? The commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, What does he say? Take off your sandals for where your feet are. It is holy ground. And Joshua did so. I want to talk intertextuality for a second. That's exactly what. Yahweh out of the burning bush said to Moses. So this is a direct callback to Moses and Yahweh's presence with him. As Moses, he read it to us. And the angel, you might have caught this, and the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. And he looked and there was the bush burning with fire, but the bush was not being consumed. Let me turn aside to see this great sight. What does the bush not be, why does the bush not burn up? And Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, and God called to him from the midst of the bush. So who's speaking? 
Well, the angel's in the midst of the bush. But Yahweh speaks from the midst of the bush. And he says, Moses, Moses. And he says, here I am. Hanani. He said, you must not come near to here. Take off your sandals. Because the place where you're standing is holy ground. Just like the tabernacle. So where is God's presence? It's on the mountain in the bush. It's in the tabernacle. It's on Sinai. It's on Zion. It's in Eden. It's in you. It's the tongues of flame. But no, our world's just material. That's all it is. It's just the globe. There's no spiritual interaction here. My mom prays. I do yoga and meditate. So, what is our world? Well, God seems pretty physical to me. I I don't know about you, but I mean, gosh, there's two other chapters on this stuff. We could keep giving examples. Um, it's almost endless. I, I wrote a paper on the angel of the Lord, and I couldn't use every passage because there's too many. Go go back to, to Hagar. Who is it that talks to Hagar in, in the desert? It's the angel of the Lord. And what does he do? He appears before her, for one thing. Just as you read, if you read through Genesis and Exodus, take a marker. Yahweh appeared. Sounds pretty physical to me. I mean, do we use the language of appear if you can't see it? Well, in the Hebrew, that's probably, um, I think it's ra'ah, I think is the root. I'd have to look to double check that. But if it's the root I'm thinking, it literally means like sight. It's, it's like you see it physically. So, I mean, if you don't want to use the word physical for God, which I think is we inherited from Western tradition through platonic dualism. So sure. there's that, um, which is something that we are actively trying to push against in these set, this set of episodes on chapter three. Um, but I think it's, it's pretty important to recognize that that's not necessarily a distinction that the Bible makes. It's not even close.